שידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשרס. כל רמה, מאה ושתיים שלוש Another edition of Partial Talk. I'm Rabbi Elliot Nyaman in Pilot Park, New Jersey, the Hot Park Conservative Public Congregation at Chemin. And joining me upstairs today is Rabbi Barry Chester, Psalm <laughs> Schechter, Long Island, and Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanowski and Anche Chesed, speaking to us from the vestibule of the Anche Chesed, where they're undergoing renovations, reparations, not reparations, just oh, reparations. <laughs> The Holy Ark right here. You want to see what's inside? Look at that. The Holy Ark. You are literally speaking to us from before the Holy Ark, which is amazing, because that is a great way to start this amazing Parsha. Bayikra with the new book, the third book of the Torah. We're going to talk about the opening of that book in a second, but just... Let's take a moment to think about this book, because this book is different. Why is this book different, or how is this book different from all other books, to coin a phrase? <laughs> Rabbi Barry Chesler. Well, it's an amazing book, Elliot. Um, it's not just an amazing parsha; it's an amazing book. This is the key to Judaism, the one that the rabbi said, little boys should study first in ancient times. And it is a book that really only has two little stories in it, but almost everything else is law or the ritual of the ordination of the sanctuary. So we are weighed down with the details of the sacrifices, but also the details of how to establish a holy community. And there is a section that is devoted to the priests and a section that is devoted to the community. And the book works out the interactions between the two. Jeremy, your take on the book. Do you like this book? Love it. Absolutely love it. Um, I, I think that this is the book in a, in a sense in which religion happens. This is, this is you know, obviously the stories of Rashid and Shmuel are incredibly moving, edifying, and profound. And you know, religion is like a set of social behaviors and holy, holy deeds that connect us to these, uh, and that connect us to these, you know, most important spiritual realities. The things that happen in Breshit and Shmot, you know, the, the great deeds of the ancestors, the, the exile and salvation, and you know, from Egyptian slavery, those things don't happen to us every day in our lives. But worship, sin purity and impurity, trying to make tshuva, you know, trying to have a society as over the course of the whole book will in, include laws about, you know, social support for the suffering and social ideals of, of holy behavior and holy character. That's what this book is about. And though the, the, the korbanot, the sacrifices might strike contemporary, you know, Jews as, as weird and alien, and, and of course they somewhat are, um, but the key things about this is what's our sacred place What's our sacred worship, and how do we encode those values in real behaviors? This is the hardcore. I think that that 
was a term that someone used. This is really the, the core of, the, of, of Judaism. And it's not an accident that you find the core of Judaism in the core of the Torah, right at the center of the Torah. And I think both of you pointed out, uh, you know, Breshin and Shemot, there's a lot of movement. This is, uh, you know, they're, they're in one place. They're at the foot of Mount Sinai throughout the whole book. And the other books, it's a lot of what God does. And this book is a lot of what God says. There is just that kind of uh, sense in this book that we're, we're, we're working into a, a, a world. And yet, and yet, I think that one of the themes that I'm going into this year's reading of the book is that within all of the laws, within all of the details, you're going to find a lot of stories. The stories may not be written out as narrative like we have in Breshid and Shmod, but even in the micro-analysis of the way that you have to sacrifice, there's a story that's being told there. But since, Jeremy, you're standing in front of the ark, uh, and we want to think about this first word, Vayikra, Vayikra el Moshe, Vayidaber Adonai elav me'ohel mo'ed. So God calls Moses and speaks to him from the tent of meeting. So you're literally standing in front of the kind of representation of the tent of meeting or the representation of the Holy of Holies. What's going on in in God calling? And and remind us where we just were. In in a sense, this pasuk, this verse, Leviticus 1.1, is is a, a clumsy kind of construction. If you didn't say the first three words, You'd be totally fine. But if, if you slapped off Vaikra El Moshe and just had Vaidaber Adunai Beohel Moed Le Mor, Vaidaber Adunai Elav Beohel Moed Le Mor, and then began to give the mitzvot, that would be a perfectly orderly biblical sentence. God, called, God spoke to Moses and said, here's, here's the mitzvah. But we have this little kind of sentence fragment at the very beginning Vaikra El Moshe, and he called to Moses. Um, what, what right in the middle of the story, as it were, the end of Exodus at the end of last week, at the dedication of the tabernacle, it says that uh, that Moses was unable to enter the tabernacle because God's presence totally filled it. It was just all God, and there was no room for humanity. Well, the very very beginning of Vayikra. And he called to him, and then God spoke to, he called to Moses, and then God spoke to him from the, from the tent of meeting, seems to, to be uh, tied directly to that. And the, the vibe is, at the end of last week, you couldn't enter. At the end of last book, you couldn't enter because the divine presence was so big, so massive, so overwhelming. There was no room for humanity. This time, God, I invite you in. I call you in, and we're going to continue this project, you and I. And I want you to join me here in the in the Ohel Moed, which is exactly the theme of Vaikra, that in the sacred space, there is a divine human meeting that will enable a sacred community to be created. There's a, there's a famous little or, orthographical figure uh, uh, of, of our verse, which is that the, that the last letter in the word Vaikra, the, the, the Aleph at the end of the word Vaikra, is written real small, uh, smaller than the other letters. And there's like a little bit of a, of a little play about this that the alufoshel olam, the gigantic aleph, the divine, shrunk itself to make room for bringing, bringing the, the human Moses into the conversation. That's lovely. Barry, you want to talk about Vayikra, the call, 
colleague. Yes, I do. I think this is actually stunning theology because you want the story in Vayikra. The story is when we pay attention, I think, to the human detail. So he called to Moshe, and I think the case is whenever God calls, the first voice you hear is not God's voice because you haven't identified it yet. You hear and now Moses knows that God is speaking to him. And this is the way we live our lives. We want to attune ourselves to God. God is just beyond us until we can locate him. So and here we're going to locate say, him in the ark. We have just a, so the, the notion that God calls us and that um, this, there is a spiritual calling. You know, Jews don't really talk like that. Jewish clergy rabbis don't really talk like that. I, I, I don't say I became a rabbi because I got a I got the call. You know, when the Jew says I got a call, it's like you know, hello, I got a call, right? But but I, you know, the truth is, I think we miss something profound because of that. We are, you know, for better and for worse, rationalists, intellectuals, and we miss a piece of life when we don't open ourselves to, you know, what was called in other earlier times, the Mysterium Tremendum. Yeah. There has to be something that grabs us. And, you know, I like to study as much as anyone, but this is what grabs us. God is what grabs us. God is what shakes us up. I think I want to make one other point here, yeah. that in Exodus, the Mishkan is the end. That's the goal that the book has been working for. We started off going down into Egypt, Jacob and his sons and grandsons, and we end with the establishment of the Mishkan. But Yikra takes the Mishkan as the given. It's no longer the end, it's the means. It's what we're going to do with the Mishkan, what we're going to do with the Ohel Moed, it's how it's going to organize our lives. When we leave this book, in a couple of months, we're going to go to the book of Bamidbar and we're going to have a new goal. The new goal is going to be to get to the land, but it's going to begin again in the Ohel Moed. The Ohel Moed is a locus of Israelite life, both physically and spiritually, and we need to keep the two together. We can't let our spiritual lives run too far from the physical life nor are our physical lives too far from the spiritual life. Are we, are we, can we, we start with the call for a moment, you, Elliot? Go ahead, yeah. Call? You want to talk about the call? Do what? what? You want to talk about the call? You want to, the call. Can... I want to, I want to say, I want to say that 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 I think Jews are somewhat apprehensive about about the notion of being called simply because it's it's such a a very strong theme within Christianity. But you know, look look at the the entire second half of the Bible is filled with God's call. Kol Omer Kira, Maya Kira, you know, Isaiah, one of, one of the most moving passages that were, was ever composed by a human being. You know, a voice says, cry out. A voice, we're always listening to a voice. And so Vayikra is, is I, I think, a summons, a summons to, to a kind of humility, a kind of service that, that um, at least this, is, this book is going to lay out for us. Now, I want to I want to reflect on this for a second because I think this is really interesting. And the uh, I, I've I've also often felt 
you know, a certain amount of jealousy, like, you know, typically our Christian colleagues, um, they feel that they go through a process of discernment and that they know that they were called to the ministry. And I think that in my experience, most, most Christian clergy that I spoke speak to feel like, yeah, God literally called me for this um, and, and summoned me to do this act of service. And I'm in a sense jealous of it um, because I think that that's a really powerful religious, for all the reasons that you guys said, a powerful religious um, motif. And I also think uh, this strikes me as maybe one of the differences between biblical and rabbinic Judaism, which is that, you know, biblical Judaism, for all the ways that you guys said, you know, God says to Jeremiah, I formed you in the womb and I planned you to do this. And God says to Isaiah, you know, I got a mission for you. And Isaiah, you know, goes off on it. Or, or Amos, he's just a cowboy, but God says, I got something I want you to do. Um, but rabbinic Judaism actually seems to turn it and say, listen, everybody should be wise and everybody should be a Torah student. And it's really your initiative and your labor that's going to get you there. So I guess I would say that there's, that both of these things are powerful religious modes. One is about the divine initiative or in, in Kabbalistic language, itarutu dila ela, like the, the, the initiative from above. And the other is itaruta dilatata, the, the, the um, initiative from below. And I guess in my religious life, I, I, I like the story of the initiative from above, but I kind of relate more and think it's a little realer to say the initiative from below. And it's, it's, my, it's my effort more than the divine call. I don't, I don't know. I think, I think it's also a sense of peoplehood, a sense that, that we, we live our lives in community. We live our lives so much uh, framed by the drama of the Jewish people that we want to be a part of that. And that's not a divine summons as much as it is a, a human summons. And I think that that's something that, that makes the rabbinate a unique vocation. The word vocation, obviously, having that origin from, from being called, Barry. I think we need to pay a little more attention to the voice. And there's an interesting passage that Rashi brings that goes back to the Sifra about this voice in the Oha Moed, that is a voice that can fell the cedar trees in Lebanon, and yet it only extends to the walls of the Oha Moed, so only Moshe hears it. It is, I, I think at some point, we have to figure out a way to identify ourselves with Moshe. And we're reluctant to do that for lots of good reasons. But on the other hand, you know, I was thinking when you were talking earlier about the voice of God, and we also have Moshe being panim el panim. So a voice we often mistake. We hear a voice and we think it's someone else's. You know, when I was living at home with my brother and my father, one of us would answer the phone and people would go through all three names before they would figure out. In fact, I was sometimes confused when I would call home and I would think I was picking it up too. But, <laughs> but Moshe knew God panim el panim and we're, it's much harder to mistake someone's face when they're right in front of us. Yeah. And I think that, you know, Vayikra is a kind of invitation, I think, in some way to see God's face in front of us to hear a voice and to respond with our being to the great being. Indeed. So let, let's look at uh, some of the content here. Uh, you know, in, uh, James Kugel uh, 
a scholar of the Bible, says, Vayikra is uh, meet the Cohens. <laughs> 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 and um, so we're meeting the Cohen, meeting the Cohens, meeting the Kohanim here. Um, the, the first several chapters deal with the sacrifices. You have five main types of sacrifices, the Ola, the Mincha, the Zevach Shlamim, the Chatat, and the Asham. The Ola, which is a completely burnt offering, the Mincha, which is a grain or meal offering, the Zevach Shlamim, which is a, a festive uh, peace offering, the Chatat, the sin offering, and the guilt offering. These are five different offerings. And you read these chapters and you get a bit of a menu option. You know, you can, if you- Well, it is meat after all. You come to the sanctuary and, you know, you, you figure out which one uh, you're, you're going to give. Um, but in, in the details, I, as I kind of alluded to, you have a story, you have the story. So in the first uh, instance, it's the Ola. Imola korbanom minabakar, that this is uh, a burnt offering that a person is taking from their cattle. Zahartamim, um, it's a male. And it's male because a, a, a female cattle uh, is, um, is valuable. It's too valuable to sacrifice just like that. So there's a, you, you need the, the female for producing more offspring. You need the female for producing milk. Uh, in the case of a large bovine or small bovine creature, el petach oamoed has to be at the at the front of the oamoed, the whole tent. And then it says, which we could talk about in a second. He has to bring it before lirzono to for his will or God's will. The samachyado al roshaulai places his hand on the head of the sacrifice. I taught this uh, this week, and there's a lot of interpretation on what does it mean to put your hand on the animal, right? And it used to be thought that when you put your hand on the animal, you're transferring some of your own identity onto the animal, or you're transferring some of your sins onto the animal. But it seems that the designation of the animal is really what the intention here is. And you're saying not that this is me, because that's almost a absurd statement. You're saying, this is mine. By, by putting your hand on it, you're making actually a legal declaration that says, this is mine, and I am offering what is mine up to God, and I am relinquishing my control over it to turn the olah, in this case, the completely burnt offering, but the, the placing of hands is done on other offerings as well, and it's saying, what is mine, I'm offering up to God. And this experience, of course, is somewhat different from our experience. I think on the, the notion of sacrifice, I always like to say it's, it's never far below the surface. The sense of giving up something that you own or giving up something even of yourself. And of course, the ultimate sacrifice, which is giving up yourself, which this is not referring to, but it's putting us into a kind of world in which this is, this is part of the, the thinking. We are giving up something. Go ahead. I think that, that the first thing that you said is the way I've always thought about it, 
and and then that led that led to the last little riff that you made about giving up giving up something of the self and ultimately as a figure a poetic figure or a mythic figure for giving up the self that that is how I, i've always said that's that was that's what ramban says about the putting on the hands is that it is a transferring of of the self and i that my inclination is that it is me is is more intense and and um a little more comprehensive perhaps than it is mine so i'm going with the one that you kind of rejected um and, and but, I, you think know, I think power. this there, there's there's a, an interesting machloket here because the the mind says that that the idea of taking myself and sacrificing myself is 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 out of the realm of of reason that that I would sacrifice for the the sake of an ultimate cause self defense defense of of my community my people. Or, or the where, where ultimate principles are at stake. Um, well, here, here, here's here's a person who's coming in with a with a set of emotions and and a set of obligations. I think and and wants to discharge that. So I'm I'm in the reasonable the rational camp. Jeremy, you're in the mystical camp. <laughs> right, and I would split the difference because I think that the laying of the hands in the bible itself and in later tradition has both meanings it has the transference like when moshe puts his hands on joshua he's transferring his authority i think that's pretty clear what the torah says even though rabbi malamit disagrees with I the disagree. there is there's certainly a sense of that but there's also a formal designation it's a different kind of transfer but it's not an ownership but when aharon puts his hands on the goat that they sent to azazel I think the shot is he's giving the sins to the goat. So and I know that in the rationalist tradition, we want to reject both meanings, but it seems to me that that's really the plain meaning. And when we seek to undermine that, we're actually reading ourselves into the Torah and not reading out what's in the disagree, Torah. Disagree, disagree. And I think I think there's there's ample ample scholarship right. on this. So I want to add one more point, Go which ahead. you could also disagree, and then ask a question. I think that... One way to look at sacrifice is that what God really wants is me. Yeah. And I cannot give myself up because then what do I have? So I'm going to give God this animal and hope that he will take this animal, that this animal will be as pleasing to him as it is to me. Right. Okay. Now, so, so this is a question, Elliot. I was thinking when you were talking and you were quite eloquent, as you often are, so the way the rabbis understand the laying on the hands is that you have to put your full weight on the animal. Yeah. They must think you're doing something. That's not just ownership. No. You know, there must be something more at work there if you can't just lay your hands on, again, which seems to be the simple meaning, and they have you leaning with all your weight, so much so that it's considered work on Shabbat. I think this is exactly, this is, Barry's saying exactly what I think also, that, that the poetry... Of, of gifts, you give something of yourself it is deeply, I, I really hear this in here. Um, I want to say one word about the English word sacrifice and the Hebrew word korbanot. Um, I, I think that, you know, in the, in the many times, you know, 20 years in the synagogue we're having, the number of times that people have said, like, well, sacrifice is about what you lose, like I sacrifice my time or I sacrifice my effort, but I think that there's a, I think that's kind of wrong in the etymology in English and how it functions in the biblical religion. 
Sacrifice really means make sacred. So the key word in sacrifice is sacred. And it's when you, it, I, I'm thinking if there's a kind of a psychic transfer, but even if it's purely a, a designation and, a, and an act of will in the way that Elliot's talking about, that too is, is like the, English, the Hebrew word hektesh. Okay, hektesh is a great word for this. It is the designated sanctity of, uh, of, of, a, of an item or an animal or, or, or this gift. And this is the part that I think is really um, beautiful and religiously relevant, even though korbanot, the word means to draw near, korban karov, um, sacrifice to make sacred, hekdesh to make kadosh, that's the part that is so interesting to me about vaikra. Like this is how it is that we come close, how it is that we sacrifice in the, in the good sense of the term, to make sacred items and behaviors. Well, I, I think you both have a, a strong sense of the, the mystical, and I, I'm going to, for the sake of the, the, the podcast here, uh, differ with you because I think that, that there's obviously room for, for tremendous disagreement. You know, the Torah, the Torah does want to be a bulwark against a kind of magical thinking. And, and what I think is problematic with the whole idea of transfer is that you know what is it, you know you put a hand on it and it's like you know there's what's going from your hand to the animal nothing is going but in the magical imagination which of course we all have and our ancestors all have we all have a kind of lively imagination that we think that there's something transfer i think that that in order to differentiate from this the the the, the sense of of possession that there's a legal aspect to this, which is I own it or I am designating something. And the, the idea that lots of the rituals are pointers, they are indexes, they are indexing things. I think that there's, there's something very powerful about that, you know, about the placing, you know, the hard and the uh, strong placing of the hand. Of course, you know, you, you ever deal with a, an ox or a, uh, a cow? Not recently. Not recently. But let me ask you, Elliot, when you bless your children on a Friday night, how hard do you lay your hands on them? I don't. I don't because it's different. It's not. I'm not doing this to, to try. I'm, I'm doing it as a caress and I'm doing it as an act of love. Okay. And embracing. I'm not saying that that there's, you know, I do pretend, you know, obviously I have an imagination too that, that something that there's, you know, going, but, but it's more out of love. And I think that that when Moses is standing with Joshua, he's placing, you know, one hand, two hands. There's a, you know, different readings here. But what he's doing is he's saying to the people, "I am designating this man now as your leader." Yes, in the in the experience of putting him up, there is a sense that these that there's leadership and kavod is being transferred to him. But let's not make any mistakes about it. You know, Joshua is a pale imitation of Moses and has to be his own independent person. And Moses is placing some of, you know, the, the, the sense of authority and, and there's a tremendous amount of vulnerability at that moment. Moses glowed like the sun and Joshua glowed like the moon. So when you said pale, pale imitation, it was like an awesome, all right. Let's, you know what? We, well, let's... Ramam says something very interesting, though, because 
he makes clear in um, in Hilchot Sanhedrin that Moses laid his hands on Joshua. That was the only time that physical smicha took place. That after that, the ordination was, you're a rabbi. And I think one of the things he's reacting to is that everyone else understands it like us. And for people like you, Elliot, he has to make clear that <laughs> this was a one-time thing, so no one should misunderstand it. Well, I, you know, I, I was I was looking at some of the videos of the JTS ordinations, the recent ones. Of course, we all have experienced it, but but we have. I think we do it actually quite nicely, which is we put a we put the talis on on the the rabbi, and um, that's new though, right? That is very new. That's in the last thirty years, I think, or forty. It wasn't they no, 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 we had a talus. You had a talus, I had a talus. No, we were given a talus, but they didn't put the talus on us. Picture. I got a picture with uh, with uh, somebody giving me a talus, the chancellor, Shorsh, gave me a talus, Dean. All right, maybe I don't remember well. I don't remember well. I'm old. All right, we we, we got to talk about Zevach HaShlamim. Zevach HaShlamim, different, different kind of offering. The Ola completely burnt. Mincha, we'll, 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 we'll leave off the grain offering for a second. Zerach Shlamim is a, an edible, it's an edible offering. And um, we, we see that, you know, there are lots and lots of examples of it in the, in the Torah. I think the, in, in Yitro, you know, they, they eat Zvachim. Um, the Zerach Shlamim is an offering that is more joyful, right? Jeremy? One of the one of the ways they describe it is when you go on pilgrimage, there's lots of different things you offer. You know, you offer, you offer like, uh, you know, olat and, 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 you know, different kinds of pilgrimage, but shalmei uh, simcha is like the, the, the offerings of joy because like you're coming on celebration and, and this is the part that is like maybe a remnant of, you know, up until Deuteronomy, like Vaikra, for all of us, talk about the, the, the Mishkan and stuff, does not ever say, as Deuteronomy says all the time, no local altars, got to come to Jerusalem, no local altars, just, just the central location. Vaikra seems to be like, maybe if you look historically, a time before the centralization of worship and, and that there was local altars, that what people did was, you know, they religiously infused their feasting. And, and so you have Chatat and you have the sin offering, you have the Asham and the guilt offering, and you have the Ola and you have the the ritual stuff, but you also have human joy, you have human well-being, you have human partying. And so Zeva HaShlamim, especially as a, as a cow, which is going to require the whole town to eat it, is, is essentially like having, in the best sense of the term, communion, communion between humanity and God, and community of the, of the, of the, of the population that they feast together, and they feast together not only in a secular way. Right. De- Deuteronomy gives us the idea of shechitat chulin, Deuteronomy, because it says you can only, you know, sacrifice in Jerusalem. That means that if you if you live up in uh, Haifa, you're not going to sacrifice very often. So they have the idea that you can have non-ritual sacrifice, um, but Vaikra seems like not to have that. And shechitat uh, or zevach hashlamim is a way of a community celebrating and having a wonderful feast. Right. And then one, one little postscript, which is not in this partnership, but it's in Tzav, you're not allowed to leave anything left over. You have to... For a couple if, of days. For, for a couple of days. In other words, you in order not to have leftovers, you have to have a lot of people sharing in it. That's a nice way to, to explain it. So I wanted to add one point here, that the Ola goes entirely to God. 
the mincha is shared between God and the Kohanim, and the Zevach Shlamim, God gets his cut, the priests get theirs, and so does the person who brings it. And I like what the way that Borach Levine explains it in his JPS commentary, that he refers to the Zevach Shlamim as a sacred gift of greeting. It is a meal where God is the invited guest. Yeah. And I think that is a powerful message because, you know, as Jeremy was talking about and secular meat, that we also have a need to do things for God, but also with God, including eating. And this is reflected perhaps in the rabbi's understanding of the meal as a table as an altar, but how we bring God to the, the dinner table. So, so is the Korban Pesach, to, to segue a little bit, we, won't, we don't have time to focus on it, but is the, the Passover offering, sacrifice, a, a, a form of Zevach Shlamim? You think it's, a, it's like a, it's, it is its own sacrifice, but it, it's most closely related to, to the Zevach Shlamim. Because right, the interesting thing is there's no priest for the Korban no Pesach. You become the, the priest. You, are, you head of household. You, are the, right. you become the priest. That's, okay. a, that's a great point. And, and you and are the scholar. You are the rabbi. And we are all learning here together. We are all enjoying this amazing Parsha. We've come to the end of our time together. And we want to thank all of our loyal fans, our loyal listeners and watch and viewers. We so, so, so appreciate your time with us and uh, studying with us and sharing our conversations, our disagreements, our arguments, and our laughter. Uh, this is about the, the joy of Torah. So, going from this to the joy of Shabbat, we want to wish everyone a beautiful Shabbat. Enjoy. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom.